Welcome to Results May Vary, a podcast to help you design your life. Chris and I have worked in the field of design and innovation for over 17 years between us. We've helped sustain a food revolution for Jamie Oliver and redesigned the way LA County votes. We've even engaged the world's most creative minds in science by turning their genes into music at TED. Throughout our careers, we always wondered, what if we took the same creative problem-solving process we used to help well-known organizations solve their toughest challenges and applied it to people's lives? Would it work? Would anyone listen to us? And maybe even scarier, what would happen if they did? Results May Vary is a thoughtful experiment to see just what happens when you set out to intentionally design your life. Results May Vary! and welcome back to episode 11 of Results May Vary. In our last episode, we spoke with fishmonger turned award-winning podcaster Mike Duncan about how you can design the past. Today, we talked to the father of contemporary acapella, Deke Sharon. In college, Deke decided to make a career of acapella, even though people laughed at him and thought he was crazy for doing so. Since then, he's arranged for The Social Network and served as music director and arranger for Pitch Perfect 1 and 2, The Sing-Off, and his new show, Pitch Slap, which premieres this week on Lifetime. In this episode, we talk to Deke about how you can design a whole new industry based on passion and perseverance. Well, would it be fair to say that you have a slight interest in acapella then? I think that would be a reasonable assessment from any perspective, any angle. People ask me, like, why do you love acapella so much? And it's a question. I don't know. Why do some people love football? Like, you know, I also love football. But I don't know that we get to choose the things that grab us. But acapella definitely grabbed me. And in a way, in particular with me, I've always been very musical. I saw the potential within it. That was something that I felt like I understood and knew. And I had this vision if people only knew, if people only realized how wonderful acapella is, both from the inside and the outside, it would take off like wildfire. And the fact of the matter is acapella is the oldest music. It's a tradition that's been throughout human history in every culture. You go to any part of the world and there's a tradition of acapella singing there. It's just that recently the combination of recorded music and American Idol making fun of people who aren't perfect and this kind of Western ideal that the really good people should do and everybody else should stop doing it has warped our sensibilities and taken away from us the gift that everybody used to have, which was that everybody used to sing around the campfire at the end of the day, at the end of the hunt, around the piano. I mean, like all these classic novels, everybody makes music together. Yeah. Well, how old were you when you first realized that it had potential? What was your introduction to it? Well, I started, I was singing in the crib, bouncing my head on my pillow and seeing myself sleep before I could speak. My parents were worried I was giving myself brain damage. It was like <laughs> this little like baby acapella headbanger, which <laughs> I kind of got an early start there, I think. So I went to Tufts University and... Did you go there specifically because of that acapella group? There were multiple reasons that I went there. I was also at New England Conservatory of Music at the same time. I wanted like a real liberal arts education and I wanted a real 
conservatory experience. Like I wanted to walk down the hallway and have all these different kinds of music going on the practice rooms and violinists who practice 11 to 14 hours a day and just the whole thing like the crazy long-haired composers and that kind of an experience. Sorry, yeah, I was just no. curious, like, it seems like all of this was more or less self-directed. Were you getting any support or was anybody a part of your experience up until you got to college sort of encouraging you or how did you navigate your way? Well, everywhere in the music world, music educators, people who teach music, they don't do it because they're going to become rich and famous. People who go into it have a deep love of music and always looking to help inspire music in young singers and young musicians. So every person that I worked with who was an adult helped me and touched my life in some different way. And particularly the choral directors at my elementary school and then at University High School, Dr. Bruce Lamott, who's still there, the longest running member on faculty, he was phenomenal and a professional music. He creates music and conducting and directing the American Bach soloists. And, and he's very involved in the California music scene. And yet for him, high school music education was his passion. And I was lucky enough to be able to study under him for four years. And it rubbed off. And he didn't expect, I mean, I think something that's said when you're reading Malcolm Gladwell, and you get this perspective, like what helped people through their journey, this through the road less taken. And it's several people who help you find your own path and don't expect less than excellence. Don't talk down to you. Don't dumb things down for you. And then when I was at the New England Conservatory of Music, I joined a department then called Third Stream Studies. It was the only place in the world you could study this. Now it's called Contemporary Improvisation. And the first two years of it are crazy ear training. You start by having to memorize like 100, 120 different melodies from around the world. And then there's nutty uh, intervallic ear training, being able to hear all these intervals. And the person would sit down on the piano and play like five note chords, and then another one, and then another one, and then another one. You'd have to just write down what their chord character is so you, so you get a sense of what chords' colors are, how they sound, so that you're really quickly able to identify the stuff. When I got to the New England Conservatory of Music, in fact, when I did the Tanglewood Young Artist Vocal Program before that, I was honestly frustrated that people weren't better than they are. And that sounds a little snotty. It sounds a lot snotty. Hey, but I'm from San Francisco. That's what we do. <laughs> we're, <laughs> we're, we're pretentious. That's our go-to. I couldn't believe the number of vocalists in this vocal program who didn't know what the circle of fifths were, who didn't have any understanding of music. They just liked to sing and had a nice voice. And it goes to the old adage, unfortunately, that there are singers and then there are musicians. And that bugged me. But when I got to the conservatory of music, I placed out of all of the undergraduate theory they taught. Hmm. So when I shifted from my third stream major over to theory and composition, I had to take all graduate courses. And I say that only because I went looking to understand how music works and would buy music theory books and books about music and listen to music and try to figure out what it was and analyze it because I was interested in the nuts and bolts of it. And I think that's one of the most essential tools in any field, knowing how something works. Just saw a great interview with Steve Martin last night and somebody asked him, so how do you make it in this business? How do you make it in this industry? And his response to that person was not what they wanted to hear, but it was be better than anybody. Be so good that you're undeniable. 
Like make people need to call you because they want what you can do and what you have. Hmm. And I'm constantly barraged with people. How do I make it an acapella? How do I get more involved in acapella? How do I do more? I mean, forget the banjo, it, the movie industry and screenwriting and plays and novels. And he creates so much material. But most importantly, he created the brand of Steve Martin and his style of humor. But he worked hard. He was at Disneyland seven days a week and he studied the magicians and he studied the performers and those like old timey theater performances. And he really understood balloon animals and he understood timing of jokes. Um, and I continue to aspire to that level of craft, that level of knowledge of everything. So it doesn't matter what somebody throws at me. If they're like, oh, we want to do this kind of barbershop thing or this vocal jazz high lows thing, this Gene Perling sounding stuff. We want to do something that sounds like the Bulgarian women's tradition and or, you know, Les Mystères, Voix Bulgaire, or we want to sound like Ladysmith, Black Mombasa, or earlier than that, the original recordings of The Lion Sleeps Tonight, whatever it is. That's all acapella, and I've gone out of my way to study and understand acapella music from around the world. So I have those tools. I have those colors because ultimately I want to paint with all those colors. And no one's going to tell you how to get those colors. No one's going to tell you the right thing to do. So if you want to be an animator, watch every cartoon ever made. Understand how it worked with forced perspective and the rotoscoping stuff that was done by Ralph Bashke, like everything, go deep, know more than everyone, know every single bit of information. So when that phone call comes and someone's looking for someone, you can say yes, and you'll be on the right track already. I love that because when you said earlier that you were kind of underwhelmed by other people, it points to a drive and curiosity that results in having the knowledge to be able to apply your creative craft in a way that's different than other people. And it's not that people kind of born loving singing and being compelled by that, but it wasn't an innate talent. It took practice and time and energy and passion. So yeah, it always does. And the thing that frustrates me so much, and people say this of, of millennials and people getting out of college right now, but honestly, it's probably the case for every single generation, you know, and that is the idea that, People want to just jump to the top and people ask me, like, well, I want to be like pentatonics. I want to be rich and famous. And that's nice. So does just about everyone else. That's not a thing. Your desire to be famous is not a commodity of any value whatsoever. Nobody cares. What is it that you can do that's great? What is the gift that you have that you want to give to other people how do you want to change the world and make it a better place? That's the thing, I think. That really resonates with me. I had the same experience at IDEO, which is a really great company to work for. And people would always reach out and say, hey, I read up about IDEO and I really want to work there. Like, I think I would be a great fit. And yeah, I'd say the same thing, like you and everybody else. So show me what's different about you, why you stand out from other people. But it is that idea that if you feel connected to something, it's almost like you feel like you deserve to have it because you've recognized its value. Yeah, I think that's right. And the thing that I want for my children, the thing that I want for everybody that I work with is to help them find their passion. And I don't mean something they like, like everybody likes a lot of different things. I mean, the thing that makes you get up in the morning, the thing that you would do, even if you weren't getting paid. And frankly, if you're going to 
make a career of music, that might be the case for a long time. So it has to be okay with you. In fact, I was looking around at my life just before this whole sing-off Pitch Perfect thing blew up, and I was happy. I was like, well, if this is what I'm doing, I get to travel around the world and work with some choirs and help people and do some arranging and help spread harmony through harmony. This is my life's work. This is what I wanted to do. I'm perfectly happy. I succeeded my goal. Yay. And I'll just keep moving forward. And then all hell broke loose. I mean, it just went ballistic. And acapella is everywhere now, which is amazing because when I started this whole thing, the idea was to help spread this harmony, help share with other people the experiences that I've had when singing and give them an opportunity to have a similar experience. I mean, when I was in high school, I would go around to all the different used CD stores and try to find other vocal harmony and acapella albums that nobody knew about. I mean, there was no place, no central clearinghouse for information on this stuff. So I'd have to go digging and, oh, here's this group from the Netherlands called Montezuma's Revenge. And, oh, there's some cool Mills Brothers stuff that it's got guitar, but then there's a comedian harmonist from Germany that are similar, but they're singing in German sometimes. Some of it's acapella and like you had to dig deep. It's so much easier now with the internet. Whoa, it's easier. I mean, in those moments, what was fueling that drive in you? That I don't know. I don't know. I mean, what makes people excited? What makes you get up in the morning? Why do you love something? I think we don't entirely know that. And your best bet is to try to trigger it and find something more than an infatuation that's short-term, try to find something that's a long-term love. Because the other thing is, if you're doing something as a career... You're going to be exhausted. You'll hit burnout at various stages. You want to love that so deep that you move through it. So it's different from like, oh, I took a watercolor class and I really like watercolors and that's fun and I'm enjoying painting. It's different from that. It's like you fall asleep and you have visions of if the paint gets a little more dry and then you apply it to a wet canvas, how it spreads and how much it'll spread. Like if you're thinking at that level, then you probably have the bug. Like if you're dreaming about it. Yeah. I wonder... Was there a moment in your earlier life when you were finding this passion where you hit a really huge roadblock or impediment that almost knocked you off of your path? Oh, sure. A big one. In fact, it's kind of a legend within uh, contemporary acapella circles. Let me set the scene for you. I go to Tufts University. I'm really excited about the Beelzebubs. I have learned a bunch of their music and have some of their previous albums because the alum from my high school acapella, high school choral program was sending back a couple of arrangements. And so I knew and was excited about the group. And my thought was this group is so good. Their music is so tight. I love it so much. They've got to all be amazing musicians. So I show up for the audition and I'm really excited about all this. And they say, all right, well, you sing a song. So I sang a tune. They're like, oh, that's really nice. And now let's check your range. Let's have you sing some scales up and down. I said, well, I can tell you, here's my high note. Here's my low note. And here's where my break is. And they're like, whoa, hold on, kid. We'll test it anyway. And then we'll let you know. So then we sang it up and down. And, and they said, wow, you're exactly right. Those are exactly the notes. I was like, okay, good. And then they said, oh, no, we'd like you to sight sing this song here. It's uh, the Vaughn Williams song, Bushes and Briars. And I said, oh, let me stop you right there. I have your album score from the early 80s. And I know this is one of the tracks on it. And I don't think it'd be fair for me to sight sing a song that I already have heard. And they were like, well, that's fine. Why don't you do it anyway? So I sight sang the second tenor part perfectly. And then I sight sang the first tenor part perfectly. And then I sight sang the baritone part. And I stopped at the end. And I said, I'm really sorry. I just want to let you know in measure 17, Second half of the measure, there's a whole note. It's supposed to be a B. I sang a C. They both work in the chord, but I just wanted to let you know that I knew I got it wrong. 
And so the thing I didn't know is that these guys had like one guy who kind of studied music and knew it a little bit. And everybody else is like pre-med and computer science, like whatever, right? So they're looking at me and they're like, who's this freakazoid kid? And meanwhile, all I'm trying to do is let them know that I'm at the lowest level and ready to learn from them in this group, right? Yeah. <laughs> so there's a total disconnect. Then I come back for the callbacks and I mean, I sing really well, but they're worried that maybe I'm not going to be able to blend as well. And I blend. Blending is one of the key things I've done ever since I've been in choir when I'm five years old. But what happened is we'd stand and sing in a circle and different guys would come and swap places next to you so they can hear your voice. So I would turn toward them and sing a little louder so they could hear my voice. Anyway, I think I freaked them out. So I didn't get in the group, bottom uh. line. And they were like, yeah, we just don't feel like it's a really good fit. So I was crushed. Like, no one's ever wanted to be in the bubs more than I did. So then I wait until the spring, and I'd moved to the arts house and had a roommate who also was a voice major at New England Conservatory. And I convinced him, like, let's try it for the bubs. And he was like, ah, I did before. I don't know if it's right for me. He's like, no, 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 it'll be super fun. Long story short, he gets in and I don't. What? Which is doubly awkward. I go right back into the audition and they still, all these guys are seniors and they're like, this guy, I don't know, he's just overzealous was the word they used. And my roommate feels terrible because he didn't even really want to do it, but I convinced him it'd be fun if we both do it together. The upside of the story is that there's a nonfiction book written about the college acapella world. There's a chapter about me in there and it tells this story and that got reworked. The book is called Pitch Perfect and that got reworked by Canon into the first movie, Pitch Perfect, where... Skyler gets in the troublemakers and Benji doesn't. He's the awkward kid on the other side of the room with the Star Wars posters and the magic. Um, I swear to God, no Star Wars posters in my life. No magic. Never done it. But I guess it was just too good a story to let go and not have in the movie of this kid who wants nothing more than to be in this acapella group. But he's just like, it doesn't work. Yeah, when so you were that, telling your story, I was like, wait a minute. This sounds like Pitch Perfect. I just watched it the other night. <laughs> Yeah, and it was great because working on the movie, I told Ben Platt the story. I don't think I told him until we were making Pitch Perfect 2. And he was like, dude, you're fucking with me. Are you serious? I'm you. And I was like, no Star Wars, no magic, I swear. No Dove releases, I promise. Anyway, he was laughing. He's a great guy, by the way. Anyway, so then the third time around, it's fall of my second year because it's a five-year program. So it's fall of my sophomore year. And I realized there's only one way to get in this group. And that's to act like I do not care at all. I just don't give a shit. So I go in there and they say, okay, auditions. What do you want to sing for your solo? And I said, you know, I don't know. Haven't really thought about anything. Maybe, uh, I don't know. What do you want to hear? And they're like, oh. Uh, uh, so I guess I sing Summertime or something. You know, Summertime and the living is. Like, I was like, who cares solo? And then, okay, here, my scale's great. Here's my up and down. Fine. Okay, so I'd sing this. Okay, great. Whatever. And I just waltzed through that whole audition like I did not care at all if I got in the group. And, of course, I got in the group. Oh, good. And then Thank at God. the end of the year, the music director. And, no, no, no. I mean, that's the funny thing. So then I was the music director of the group and it was constantly pushing and in the group developed a new sound involving vocal and instrumental sounds and vocal percussion and took that into being professional and, like, all the rest the story was written. But it was actually very helpful to me because the music director is the one who calls the people who make the callbacks but don't get in the group to tell them. And I could empathize with them better than anyone before me or after what it's like to really want to be in this group and not get in. And I always told people, audition again. Don't give up. Keep going. 
frankly not getting in the group until the third audition coiled my spring tighter and may have been a fueling source for me. It may have really helped drive me to do everything that I've done in my life because I learned if you really want something, you don't give up. You don't give up. And it was a hard, long freshman year. And I'd go to the concerts and I'd sit there and listen to them sing the same songs. And I'm like, ah, they should, the second tenor's flat and guys, come on. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I really saw that it was a bit of an off year. Like, they weren't all the way up to par. And it was frustrating for me. Like, if I were in this group, I'd be able to make it better. Okay, all right. I just need to get in this group. I just need to figure out how to make that happen. As you're telling your story, I'm wondering if, are there people out there that sing that you say, that you look at them and you go, you know, no matter how much effort you're going to put into this, the penalty is just too high. You're just not going to be able to pull this off. I know it's contrary to everything I'm hearing from you, but is there anybody out there where you tell them, you know, you just maybe singing is not your thing? Everyone can sing. If you can speak, you can sing. And now so many people in American culture say, I'm tone deaf. And the bottom line is, no, 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 no. If you talk like this, you're tone deaf. If you can't say, if your voice can't rise at the end of a question, you're tone deaf, like, what are you doing right now? Like if someone can't, you know, like, what's up? You know, what's up? You know, and if you can't have a rise and a fall in your voice, then you are fully tone deaf. But I think there are like three people on the planet who are actually technically like Oliver Sacks problem with their brain tone deaf. Everybody else is not tone deaf. The problem is a matter of matching pitch. And just as, okay, not everybody's going to be Michael Jordan, right? And maybe someone's like, I want to be Christina Aguilera. Well, she just has a certain amount of vocal fluidity that is coupled, like she has an incredible instrument and she's been singing every single day since her very young life as a mini musketeer or whatever they were called, right? So she's ahead of you. You will probably never catch up with her unless something strange happens. However, to use the basketball analogy, hitting a note is like hitting a free throw. And if you've not been shooting hoops, you shouldn't expect to get the ball in the hoop very often. But if you go and you start shooting hoops every day after work, just for an hour, you start getting better, you start getting better, you start getting better. You may never be professional level, but you can absolutely do it at a level that is enjoyable and that is of quality. End of story. But everybody can. Everybody used to. Everybody used to sing. Join a local choir, get together with some friends, go to karaoke night. The vocal cords are just a muscle, and it's a muscle that everybody can use. It's just hugely underutilized in our culture. I think it was when recorded music started becoming popular, John Philip Sousa, the, you know, the March guy, Stars and Stripes Forever, he remarked that this will change and in many ways ruin music in America, around the world. Mm. And he was right, because before then, people had to create music. If you wanted music, you made music. You have some friends over for dinner. After that, somebody retires to the piano and you have a sing-along. When's the last time anybody you know anywhere ever had a sing-along? Maybe a caroling party. But even those are an anomaly. Like, it's so rare now for people to get together and sing. And it used to be a given. It used to be standard. So our culture has really changed. And that's why... I say, like, people sing in the shower, people sing while they're driving to work, but people are afraid of getting in front of other people and singing because Simon Cowell has so tainted, (laughs) so poisoned the well, so destroyed people's own sense of their ability to sing through this horrible pageant where they take people and they, ah, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's It's crazy, I have to say I'm giggling because this interview is so timely. Alyssa and I are, we don't sing and 
I can barely play guitar, but we're doing a duet at our own wedding in front of 70 people just because we thought that seemed like a good idea at the time. And the way that we set it up was it'll either be cute because it's horrible and people will laugh because look at this couple just trying, or it'll be something where it actually sounds pretty good and we'll be really proud of ourselves. So either way, it's a win. But I'm nodding as you're saying how rare it's just so rare that people will casually do that. Yeah, but it's going to be great because here's the thing that people forget about music. Music is expression. Music is emotion. Nobody at the end of the day picks up their iPhone, their iPod, turns on the radio and says, I want to listen to the most in-tune piece of music I have. I want to listen to the most technically precise thing. No, 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 no. If that were the case, the Alan Parsons Project would be the Beatles. The fact of the matter is people listen to music because it gives them a feeling. It gives them joy. And that's why people go hunting on YouTube and find these unknown singers or some child or some moment, some video of someone singing at their wedding. And you tear up because it's so honest, so powerful. I just worked with some singers down in San Diego this past weekend, and they were incredibly powerful, technically. They were really good. But they sang with all these kind of fake gestures that come from the Sweet Adeline tradition. And so when I closed my eyes and listened, it sounded really nice. But I opened my eyes and it just their faces were kind of fake and their hands were moving and their heads were shaking. And it just felt like a giant put on. And the song was You Are My Sunshine, oldest thing ever, right? So then I told him, guys, I had to stop them. And I had to call them out for all of these fake movements. And I said, you have to sing music that means something to you. Otherwise, it's meaningless to the audience. You have to connect with them. And one of the women's eyes started tearing up. And it took a little while to get the story out of her. But it turns out her husband of 14 years lost his battle with depression the previous year. And he was her sunshine. And all of a sudden, shit got real. And I said, that, that's real. Sing about that. And then we started working together. And it was a transformative experience. And all of a sudden, the audience was like tears in their eyes. And somebody captured this moment on their iPhone or something, grainy, the sound isn't good or whatever. And in the past 72 hours, it's been viewed 25,000 times on Facebook and forwarded over 500. Like, it's like a masterclass with a barbershop group. But it's real music. They did something real. People want that so much now. They're so hungry for that experience, for that sound, for that real connection with other humans. And that's one of the things that acapella does better than anything. And the reason I'm telling you all this is because when you're up there and you're singing that song with your new wife, Don't get caught up in, oh, this isn't good enough, or oh, I should be more Mm. polished, or whatever. No, just sing the song, and it will take care of itself. That's what we don't have in our culture anymore, and that's what people want. I guarantee you it'll be a beautiful moment. Mm, It's great. By definition, it's a beautiful moment. The simple fact that you're doing it (laughs) is fantastic. Yeah. A question. We talk to a lot of successful people, you included, and you've got people find their thing, and they lock on, and in your case, it was... At one point, it wasn't necessarily your thing, and you just kept persevering, and lo and behold, it all worked out with a lot of time and energy. I'm curious, now in your life, do you still take on things in new categories that you suck at, or do you allocate the majority of time to the thing you're really good at? When I'm arranging songs, I try, and I've done over 2,000, but I try every arrangement to put something in I've never done before, to try something new, to continue to push the envelope. And I always have a fallback position if it doesn't work. It's not like everything is genius. But I've found, like, my life's work is to spread harmony through harmony. So I'm continuing to do that. That's where I should be spending my time. It's my vocation and my avocation. 
It's my passion, and much of my time is spent doing that. However, I like moving outside my comfort zone. And in fact, who expects to get a phone call from Lifetime Television saying they want to build a reality television show around you at age 47? So I had never been an on-television personality. I'd never worked with a high school group for more than a couple hours. And yet, lo and behold, a couple months ago, I found myself in Cherry Hill, New Jersey for two months working full-time with a high school acapella group and having three cameras follow me everywhere and capture that whole experience of what it is to make music, not just on stage, not just with professional singers, but with this ragtag after school, bad news bears type program. So that was unexpected. And now I'm working on a musical that's going to Broadway. Hadn't done that before. I mean, I sang in musicals when I was in high school, but that takes me outside my comfort zone and like that. So it's, Definitely the thing I should be doing with my life right now is the thing that I'm doing, but it's not a matter of me continuing to do it in the same way. I want to expand out what acapella is doing and how it's permeating the major media right now in hopes of inspiring more people to sing and get more vocal music out there. It seems like your dedication, when you were saying earlier, make yourself be the person that somebody calls because you're so valuable. It seems like this is a moment for you that you've all of your life working towards this and having successes and high points. It's all sort of coming together. Like you said, at the age 47, why do you think that's happened now for you? The thing that I told myself when I was graduating, I was starting a career of this was that if people only knew how great this is, they would love it. And that's been my mantra all the way throughout. The experience of singing in an acapella group with other people, be it professional or amateur, is transformative. That the sum is greater than the individual parts, the, the interconnectedness of your voices, it's unbelievably powerful. And I highly recommend it to anybody who hasn't done it before. It's so much fun. And music is the international language. It, it speaks to things that you can't use language to say. And the connection that you have with the other people in the group. It's beyond any sports team. And if you do it right, you always win. I mean, that's another great thing about music and particularly singing. But to get back to your original question, the nature of, I always knew that it's great. And it was a matter of distribution. It was a matter of getting it out there. So that's what I did. I started a nonprofit organization. I started a publishing company. I gave away arrangements, helped groups get started whenever possible. And when I graduated college and started the Contemporary Acapella Society, there were maybe 200 college acapella groups. Now there are over 3,000. I wanted there to be a March Madness of acapella the same way there is for basketball. So I started the NCCA, which became the ICCA, the International Championship of College Acapella, which is now in the movie Pitch Perfect. It's kind of the centerpiece of it. It's a real competition. I started it shortly after college because I knew to popularize this kind of music, you needed some kind of a competitive form on the collegiate level, and so on and so on and so on. So this was always the goal. I didn't know where it would go, but get more people interested, more people interested, more people interested. And again, as Gladwell pointed out, there seemed to have been a tipping point, and all of a sudden now everybody knows what acapella is. Back when I graduated, nobody knew what acapella was, or most people didn't. And if you said the word, they thought maybe classical choral music or barbershop, doo-wop, church music. I mean, it wasn't really clear. And then maybe 10 years ago, acapella was a punchline in Scrubs, in The Office. It was like, oh, that geeky thing that people do in college. And then once we got the sing-off on the air and we could show people what it really was, people started going, oh, that's actually awesome. 
that's impressive. And then Pitch Perfect made it really popular, and now it's a thing. So the bottom line is I knew that it would be popular. I knew that it could be popular. Let me put it that way. There's no – I mean if, if I went back and started this whole thing again, lots of different things could be different. And luck is luck. I mean I don't take for granted. That's probably the most important coefficient in anybody's life story. But I knew that it could be huge. I just didn't know how or specifically what my role in that would end up being down the line. I have a question so, for you there. As it at forty seven, you get this show, and everything's just orders of magnitude bigger, more influence, more people. And this was a place that you never thought would happen. And so now that you're in this place, I guess two parts of the question is: Do you feel like you have a sense of control over where it's going, and do you now have your sights set on the next thing, or how do you kind of sit in the place where you are now? That's a good question. Well. I continue to do what I've done, which is to try to allocate my time, my most valuable resource, as effectively as possible. And after being on the road and touring around the world and performing myself in my own group, the house shacks that I started out of college, I had to finally leave the group because I'm too busy with too much going on. Broadway coming up. We've got this Lifetime show. Pitch Perfect 3 is definitely going to happen. I've got other great new projects in the works that I can't talk about yet. But the overall goal remains the same but I do see my role shifting to elder statesman more as the pyramid grows taller and I'm rising up on the top of it. I see that the nature of what I do changes and varies. And it's still really important for me to continue to interact with the media on the highest levels. That's one of the most important things because that's where we reach the most people, I feel. And it really is a life's work. It really is a mission to spread harmony through harmony. When you get people singing together from all different cultures, all different walks of life, it not only changes their life, but it creates bonds, connections between people. And that's one of the greatest things about college acapella. You got a group. You got the jock. You got the pre-med guy. You got somebody who's a computer scientist. You've got somebody who's like crazy arts dude. The people in a college acapella group are really varied, more of a cross-section of a college demographically than possibly any other pursuit or activity you find people that I found, I became very good friends with people I never would have met or known in college because you have your circles and you run in your circles. And then you end up having to create things together. You have to work together. You have to agree on things together. You have to push through problems together. That is incredibly valuable. Those skills are unbelievably valuable. And that's part of why the college acapella thing is so great. And it works across life as well. These community acapella groups, there's a group in Memphis called Delta Capella, and they just won a competition and traveled over and performed in Shanghai. I was there with them a month ago, and they are a cross-section of Memphis. It's all guys, but their youngest members are like 19, 20, and their oldest members 70-something. They're black and white. They're rich and poor. I mean, it's a real cross-section of what Memphis is, and Memphis is a town that does not have a lot of real integration like that. These people are friends and they're comrades. And so when they perform around the area, they're making a social and political statement at the same time as just entertaining people. But they're not doing it with a heavy hand. They're just showing people who they are. And now we're going to sing another tune. Now we're going to sing an old folk song. Now we're going to sing a pop song on the radio. It may seem like our society and our culture doesn't need that right now, particularly as the three of us sit here in San Francisco in our enlightened ivory tower of political and social awareness 
But America needs this, and the world needs this very, very much. We need to understand each other better and to respect each other more. And these kind of experiences, singing together, do that better than anything else I've seen, anything else I've experienced. Yeah, and hopefully there's someone listening to this out there who's got a crazy dream. And all I have to say to that person is work hard and find out everything you can about it so that then you're able to create your own success because it's absolutely doable. So, Deeg. Yes. What a superpower. Superstar. Super voice. Pitch perfect. That's right. I mean, he basically, you know, wasn't the only person, but was one of the most instrumental people in bringing acapella to the world. Yes. And right off the bat, you were asking him about his past. And you, you asked it a pointed question around, how did you fall in love with this? And how did you know this was going to be your pursuit? And his, his response to you was really interesting. Sometimes you don't find it, it finds you. Yeah, agreed. And I think our listeners would either respond favorably to that, which is like, oh, cool, well, it'll find me. Or they'll listen in a little bit of frustration, which is like, oh, man, mine hasn't found me yet. You yeah. Know? Well, it's um, interesting. I just was yesterday watching... Elizabeth Gilbert do her Soul Sunday talk with Oprah about passion and how she used to really talk about how important it was to find your passion. And once you found it, you could just go to town. And, (laughs) you know, it's like, that's great because she's the kind of person who had found her passion, similar to Deke. But she got this really long Facebook post from a woman who was so frustrated because she felt like there was something wrong with her that she'd tried searching and wanted to feel this fire inside of her and that that simply wasn't her reality. And so Elizabeth Gilbert was talking about this concept of either being a jackhammer where you know your passion and you just drill down or being a hummingbird where you're sort of being led by curiosity and you're pollinating all of the other people in the world with your different interests from you know time to time as you're changing up. And I really liked right. that. I think we've talked a little bit about passion on the show before with Jessica and others, and I wanted to bring that perspective to our conversation as well. Right, right. And it it goes on the heels of what would you be willing to suffer for? And I think that's true when I think about that article and I think about when I listen to Deke, that that's certainly true in his case. He put in a lot of effort to get to where he is. And the other part about his story is there are a lot of people that put a lot of effort into him to bring him there. And it really stood out to me just how many people invested in him and believed in him and just the importance of these mentors and people that you find on your path that believe in you Yeah, and will extract it out of you. You know, it's, as you hear him talk about his processes, some natural born gifts, you know, his, his ear sounds like it's very, it mm. came very natural for him, but that alone wasn't enough. He needed to be trained and he needed to know the way and he needed to be exposed. And you can just imagine how many thousands of hours he's invested in his ear and his training. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's why when people talk about somebody being self-made, you're meeting someone halfway or you're meeting multiple people halfway. You're doing your part. He did his part. He was really looking into different types of acapella singing and he knew everything there is to know about music. He was putting in that time and effort. And because he was doing that and people were there supporting him, those it all worked symbiotically. That's right. The other thing that stood out for me that I found to be a little sad, really, is on the one hand, in a modern America, where we're very liberated to explore whatever we want. And on the other hand, I feel like it's sad that when we were talking about singing, just how singing is now reserved for the greats, you know, and you, you're either good at it or you don't do it at all. And there seems to be maybe a funky way of saying it's kind of like a demise of vulnerability, like we're living in the demise of being publicly vulnerable. And I think for our project, that's in some ways we're trying to reinvigorate that to expose a little bit of your vulnerability to to start to grow and nurture and go forth. But this idea that we just don't sit around and sing anymore is, I think, pretty sad. Well, it's interesting to me because it's almost it gets a little bit back to what Steve Allman was talking about, where, you know, you have creators and then you have people who just sort of sit back and consume And we have all these distractions. We have (laughs) all of this content being provided to us. And I was just talking to some students today who were, well, they were saying, how do I design productivity at the end of the day when I come back from class? And I was asking, are you really talking about you want to be more productive after you spent a whole day of being productive? Or are you looking for a way to unwind that feels productive? You know, like right. I think there's a there's a difference there and you have to have a balance. And we have now gone so completely to one side, which is to just sit back and consume where right. we used to be creating together because that's how we created closeness and and entertainment. You didn't have American Idol or whatever to watch other people be vulnerable. You just did it yourself. <laughs> Right. Yeah, it is fun because I, I think of our podcast like that. I look forward to it. You know, it takes effort, but we like doing it. And I just think of it as a productive craft. That's a relief, not necessarily just more work. But yet I feel like we're producing something and that feels fun. So good for us. Yay. Um, the other, yeah. <laughs> Yay us. The other thing though that I wanted to mention is we recorded the episode a few weeks back and uh, soon after the episode, just by coincidence, was our singing debut at the wedding. And, and his points were spot on, which is it didn't sound perfect at all, yet it was totally perfect and really fun. And probably one of the highlights of the experience and the overall experience was awesome. And it. so just super fun and just really validates that kind of just sticking your neck out there and do, doing something really unexpected. So yeah, that was, it was fun. so inspired by the two of you doing that. I mean, I played music growing up and it took a lot for me to ever get up on stage as a part of a band. So to do that on a day that I would say is probably one of your most vulnerable (laughs) days as a human being anyway, and then then adding that extra layer on top uh, is pretty superhuman. Uh, Yeah, not really, though. But yeah, (laughs) it was fun. It was fun and and actually quite natural in the end. So Deke has accomplished a lot. What I really liked about his storyline is when he was evaluating his life and he thought, 
if what I end up doing is traveling the globe, not making much money, but supporting these groups and bringing the best out of people's acapella experience, then that, that's that's a pretty good life for me. It is always neat to just hear that the the really successful part is really just kind of all the gravy for the hard work that was there. And I sense that Deke would be a pretty happy person regardless of if that happened or not. And this is just giving him an even greater platform for people to be exposed to his great work. I agree. And I think there's something universal that he's tapped in with this. I watched Pitch Perfect and then over Thanksgiving we watched Pitch Perfect 2 with my mom who likes to sing and is in a couple of choirs. And there's just something about that natural music and harmonizing together. It's exciting to watch. I know maybe it sounds corny, but I really got into it. I thought it was super entertaining. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is. Yeah. And as you're describing your experience with it, I can't wait for our synthesis episode because there's so many consistencies here, whether it's the writing or Andy Weir or the way that Kyra kind of reinvented herself in the healthcare world or the way that Steve runs writing workshops. There's so many similarities. It's like you could just we're almost getting to a place where I feel like you could find and replace the content area. And there's like some very universal truths. And one of the hard facing universal truths is just that I think people want it to be easier than it is. And in a weird way, it's almost a relief to know that it's just supposed to be hard. Oh, yeah. So that, so that when it is hard, you're like, oh, I guess I'm doing it right. Because I think a lot of times you think of hard as like, I must be doing something wrong because other people have this success and it seems to come easier or they have their calling and it seems to just hit them over the head or right. all the stuff they were talking about. But as you go down this stuff and you realize that, no, it's actually supposed to be hard. Then when it is hard, you're like, oh, good, I'm doing it right. <laughs> I'm doing it right. It's supposed to be hard. And in a weird way, that makes it easier. No, it does so, because, it, yeah, it validates that you're on the right path for right, sure. Right. I love that. Well, I also, um, he talked about this idea of your commodity of wanting to succeed and I just, th that phrase really stood out to me and saying that it's of no value, like exactly. saying I really want something. I always exactly. think that when I watch America's Next Top Model, which I watch, <laughs> <laughs> guilty pleasure, the models are like, I just want this more than anyone else and therefore I deserve it. And it's like, no, nope, you don't. You could, you could want it as much as you as exactly. you want, but it doesn't no, mean that great. you deserve it. This is great. Yeah. Like you owe it to me. You owe it to me because I've always wanted to be successful. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that was great. Um, I like the idea, too, that it's a commodity, this idea that... Everybody wants that. Everybody is saying that to you. And yes. You're sitting there as someone who decides, you know, you move forward or you don't in this acapella world. Tell me something different. Like, right. be really good at what you do or be really knowledgeable have that passion shine through so that I can see it. Right. I had a note that it came up earlier in our conversation, but I, I think in Deke's words, he said, your best bet is to try to trigger it. And he was referring to the passion thing. And we've concluded this before, but I think that the idea that if you're not sure what it is, then the curiosity is the passion. So, mm -hmm. so the search, the search is the passion. Which is to me again is a big relief. So it's like, oh, well, if you're in a rut, just start start the search again and get passionate about the search. Mm -hmm. um, which is which is pretty easy to start to excite yourself around. Like, oh, cool, I'm going to try this and I'm going to try this because 
even the failures there don't feel like failures because you know you're just in a curiosity state. Yeah, there's no um, expectation. And then, and then I loved when you talked about being a kid, this like baby acapella headbanger. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I laughed out loud when you when you guys were talking about that. Nice. Well, All I right. think another fantastic interview, uh, more, another generous interviewee, and we're on a roll. Let's see what's in store for 2016. All right, that's a wrap. Thanks so much for listening. Our dream is to build a community of people who can create and take advantage of any opportunity that interests them. To do this really well, we'd love for you to participate. Try out and share back your own life design experiments, or if you've already got a great story of how you've designed your life, we'd love to hear from you on our Facebook page or at resultsmayvarypodcast.com. Our website is also where you'll find show notes and links to all of the things we mentioned in the episode. And if you would be so kind, subscribe to the show and share your favorite episodes with friends. That'll let even more people start designing their own lives. A big thanks to the folks who help us make the show possible. Composer and filmmaker H.P. Mendoza for the Results May Vary theme music. Graphic designer Anessa Bramer for our logo. David Glazier for sound mixing. And team podcast for editing. And of course, thank you so much for listening to Results May Vary!